Well, welcome back to Open to Truth, a podcast all about exploring big ideas and discovering truth together. My name's Clint. Hey, I'm Tony. Welcome back. Uh, I like to talk on this podcast about things that you and I are both currently interested in and passionate about. That's what makes I it. I think that yeah. comes through mm-hmm. over the airwaves and hopefully on the video. Yeah, yeah. So something that you're currently doing yeah. and I'm involved through different things I'm doing with at church as well is you are about to preach a sermon yeah. to actual people. To real people. Hundreds of them, in yeah, fact. Yeah, they're going to listen to things that I say. On the book of Revelation. Well, I'm just realizing, I'm realizing now a couple of these most recent episodes have been me preaching a sermon and coming to you with like, hey, we should do an episode on this because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm wrestling with it. Yeah, preaching on Revelation. So it's part of a series that we're doing on the book of Revelation. And I think the idea with the whole series is it's probably not what people are expecting mm-hmm. um, in terms of we're not like preaching rapture and pre-trib, post-trib, end time stuff. Yeah. Uh, we are trying to provide a little bit of a different approach to Revelation because it's falling within this larger series that's like year long called The Journey, where the goal really is to increase biblical literacy across the church, like help people be more comfortable picking up a Bible and having some clue about best practices. Like how should you approach this book that Mm -hmm. is not just one book? It's a library. Maybe a short disclaimer. We've done this little rant before, Mm. but for those, I know for a fact, there are people that listen to this that are not necessarily of the Christian persuasion and Jesus followers. Just to point out like Western civilization has so many touch points with the Bible. Mm -hmm. It's infused in pop culture and some of our great books of literature yep. uh, through the Western world, scriptural ideas are embedded in there. So it would behoove you as a student of the world to familiarize yourself with the Bible, mm-hmm. just Bible as literature at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something I want, that little nugget is something I want to get to later as we unpack this particular document, the book of Revelation. Um, but just, so don't tune out right away if you're, that, that even if yeah. you don't think it is some sort of spiritually significant book, it's at least culturally significant and mm-hmm. has been historically significant. Or, or is that well, what you mean? Uh, I, I do want to include. I think it could be spiritually significant for anybody. Just even not, those who would consider themselves not to be spiritual or want nothing to do with spirituality. I mean, I'm in agreement. Yeah, but um, I'm thinking the dyed-in-the-wool materialist who says it's just a book written by some dudes. There ain't no such thing as spirits. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, it depends what you mean by spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, 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 it would. Uh, it, it deserves attention mm-hmm. even over and above other great books. Oh, in I my got opinion, you. Sure. As like the book, if you wow. will, the okay. Bible. All right. Um, yeah. It's like one of the first books of humanity. Some of the oldest stories yeah, humanity has been telling. Just its unique properties, I think, warrant attention regardless of your background and have... If anything has something to say, yeah, then this does mm-hmm. because it shares those properties and then some. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Is that? Yeah, I think crazy? so. I mean, and I just mean to say, even if you don't think it's divinely inspired, mm-hmm. it's a whole other thing what that exactly means. But that supernatural like infusion. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, I got you. So as I was preparing this week, I I yeah, what was, have you run into? Well, I was just struck. <laughs> what have I run into? You know, it's a challenge anytime you preach, I think, to try to interpret what an author wrote down thousands of years ago in a culture that's very different than your own, 
in a particular genre. There's just a lot of considerations. And I was just struck by how wide the spectrum is, especially when you get to the book of Revelation, of views about what this book is saying. I mean, you can have some very, very extreme views about what what this book is saying. Everything from on the one end of the spectrum, maybe, maybe you can think of a further point than this. On the one end of the spectrum, maybe you think John took some mushrooms and is just like, he's having a manic episode and he's just writing down everything that he sees, Mm -hmm. uh, rambling like a schizophrenic person, maybe. Then you've got, well, maybe he is writing in code to the churches that are nearby because they're undergoing persecution. The Romans aren't happy with this Christian movement that's proliferating through the region. Uh, That's why John is in exile. And so he's writing in a way that is veiled. It's not plain English. He's using images like, oh, the whore of Babylon and the the seven golden lampstands and the bowls of wrath and the Mm -hmm. wine press. And I mean, there's all sorts of images going on. It's much more intentional and maps on to maybe current things at his time than an acid trip. Exactly, exactly. So like there is something he's trying to say there. It's just veiled. And then you've got the views that would take everything he says as being visions of what will literally happen sometime in the future. So a beast out of the the sea and... Mm -hmm the mark of the beast that will end up on people's foreheads or hands. And there's this number you've got to figure out, 666, what does that mean? And no one will be able to buy or trade if they don't get the mark. And um, and and there is with that, this whole coloring of future events that for us here today still haven't taken place. We are still awaiting this, you know, the rapture and God snatching his people away and then earth gets plunged into chaos. So I was just struck afresh by, again, this isn't new territory. We've talked about this before, but the responsibility and challenge that you have when you're attempting to interpret something like this, given how different your destinations can be, like how different um, your conclusions can be, uh, depending on how you slice up what it was the author was trying to communicate. There's just a lot at stake, it seems. Uh, And so... I just wanted to have a discussion about maybe like some best practices, uh, Mm. how I've gone about approaching this. And then like, it's not unique to revelation. This isn't a challenge. that's unique to revelation or frankly, unique to the Bible. This is, this is a a challenge of interpreting another person's communications when divorced from their culture and time. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how you want to start there or slice that up, but well, one, uh, maybe I don't want to go too far afield, but okay. There's a pretty fascinating debate in epistemology, maybe from the last episode, the study of knowledge mm-hmm. of um, how do you how do you actually gather knowledge? Do you develop a method or do you like just deploy this method I'm going to use to gather knowledge? Or do you start with particular instances of knowledge to develop a method to find knowledge. Oh no, chicken each, chicken egg problem. Each seem a little bit parasitic on the other. Mm. So to bring this analog to revelation interpretation and or any really any, any. book of yeah, yeah, any piece of literature, any document. Do I come to the table before doing anything else with a method of interpretation mm. or a rubric? Mm-hmm. But Or do I, in order to feel justified in using that method, have to look at particular instances of evidence to build that method? But the problem is, Mm. if you choose that second one, you're like, well, why'd you pick those instances? You must have been using a method. You must have had a method. (laughs) So there's what in philosophy it's called particularism, picking out the individuals to build a method versus methodism, starting with a method to pick out particulars. 
Wow. I hadn't the, heard it broken down I like fall, that. Did that, that made up, sense. You that com- was enough layman. You communicated clearly enough that I interpreted it, I think, the right way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I used the method of English you in did. that. So, yeah, man, when it comes to Revelation in particular, then I'm not going to try to solve that problem. I'm okay. probably yeah. going to go with, I'm just, I'm going to assume particularism yeah. and try to build a method on that basis. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at particular instances that are more clear that will help me then, I'll then build a method that mm-hmm. I can use on the less clear, more opaque, more culturally distant sections. Okay. And when you say method, I mean, I know what the word means, but specifically when you're talking about hermeneutics, like attempting to mm-hmm. uh, interpret something, what is what do you what exactly do you mean by method? Yeah. Like you have some rules you follow, or uh, real, I guess maybe the better word that I meant was heuristic. Okay. Or it's um, it's what I'm bringing to the table of what what is this book doing and what's it about? So you carved out just colloquially a few of the positions. Mm-hmm. If we want to put some labels on it, I'm sure one would more. be the preterist view. Mm-hmm. And this is the view that the document of Revelation, uh, everything in there has already come to pass. Mm-hmm. Everything that John was at least claiming to be in a divinely inspired vision or dream was about the very near future at his time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say it's, uh, in the, within the preterist camp, there's a division of scholars whether this was written and spoke of the years 58 through 70 mm-hmm. in the reign of Nero yep. versus the reign of Domitian in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know as much about the Domitian one, but the Neronian, the mm-hmm. one about the Nero reign. Um, John is kind of right. The visions have to do with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Mm. So all of this is veiled language. That's what it's pointing um, to. Because... Uh, and, and they're saying, well, the author, John, whether that's John the disciple or John the elder, just kind of this weird figure in biblical um, scholarship, mm-hmm. someone named John was on this Isle of Patmos, this prisoner colony, um, and in order to get a missive past the Romans that were guarding them, it had to be in veiled language. That's kind of the story. Yeah, okay. And so there's just all these- Just imagining the gods reading, like proofreading. Oh, what is this? Send, yeah, it send it through. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> What's this about a prostitute? Yeah. <laughs> Take steal that one for a second. Hold on to that one. Yeah. Okay. And so, so that is a heuristic that I can, if I feel convinced of that heuristic on the basis of some individual pieces of evidence that seems pretty solid, then on Out, pla- those pieces of evidence, something external to the text. You mean? No, no, no. Okay. Internal in the text. Okay. Mm-hmm then that's going to help me try to sort out what the author meant at these places where it's not as clear. Yeah. The other one you mentioned, um, the historicist view, Mm -hmm. is that all of the events are going to take place at some point in history. Mm. So you might think, and there's a third view called the futurist, which is basically everything after chapter three, I believe, after the letters to the churches. Yeah. Which is what you're teaching on, I think. Yeah, yeah. That's all in the future. So the the historicist and the futurist are on the spectrum of when is this stuff going to happen? Yep. Um, And then fourthly, an idealist view is sometimes called where none of it has anything to do with history at at all. Mm -hmm. It's more about 
uh, it's all metaphorical about the great battle between good and evil. Yeah, right. Right, right. And then maybe like the fifth more fringe view about uh, the mushroom view. He's on <laughs> he's on mushrooms and it's I don't know all, if that's an actual view. I'm sure some people think that. It's all but, nonsense. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. So those are all you know, I think that's what's happening is you you can or or certain okay, maybe a sixth one, which is maybe like the common man if you were just to pick up and read it, this is a literal I don't know, shot for shot or like or or treating it like no, not that. More like treating it like Nostradamus, mm. where this is some I can make this parallel to something going on in my lifetime. So like less rigorous than the his. It's like a kind of a crappy version of the historicist, <laughs> where it just all you of course are in the end times. Yeah, it wasn't. It's not in the future. You are that privileged You're group. There. Yeah, and so you pinpoint all the things that are happening around you. To well, like, did, COVID is the great pestilence. That was my default. Uh, Joe Biden's the Antichrist. Right. That yeah. was my default view. Like growing up as a kid, I remember, dude. Yeah, I remember when I was a teenager, being like obsessed with the end of the world and wanting to figure out, like, thinking that Reve- Revelation is this book that's telling me how it's all going to unfold. Yes. I don't know why I don't know why I became convinced that it was going to unfold in my lifetime, but somehow I did think that. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I there, would... there's something logically salient about that where it's true that you are more likely to be. It's not any at, of the other ones. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're the most likely person right now to be in the end times than people <laughs> yeah. that came before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, but it, but it led to yeah, just like you're saying, trying to. Um, synchronized events I see in the newspaper with writings from John from Patmos. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, he wrote about this thing. Well, that's probably this thing that just happened in the European Union or, you know. Um, and and it almost, for me, like actually is a very similar headspace to when you dive down conspiracy theory rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that, um, I don't know, wanting to have secret knowledge or wa- I don't know um, what it is there, but it's the same kind of nerve that gets struck I, I found in myself from deep diving into that and trying to interpret revelation with a newspaper. Yeah. Which, yeah. So, but you were saying your method arises out of something you see in the text. Right. Yeah. So particular data points that you, you know, in by scholarship or you just intuit to be mm-hmm. uh, really important pieces of information that you then feel justified and like, okay, this is the method I'm going to use for the book. Right. Yeah. I mean, it would probably be. I don't. I don't know enough to like run through all of those for each of the views. Oh. Um. I can try like a few of them. I mean, I know the preterist view is like pretty heavy on like, hey, look, in the opening, twelve, ten or eleven verses, there's a lot of stuff about because the time is near, mm-hmm. because things are at hand and are about to happen. Mm-hmm. Um. And so they just take that at face value that that's what that's what he was talking about. Yeah, they are going to be fulfilled soon. Mm-hmm. I think that's the key pieces they run with. Now, I don't know if this is a no. This doesn't seem like a method necessarily, but it is a. It is almost always my first step when I'm confronted with uh, actually any sermon, any anything that's like, mm-hmm. "Hey, go read this thing and then tell people about it." Step one for me is always trying to like step back and get larger context. So. I don't want to read, first of all, I don't want to read a verse in isolation. I don't want to read a chapter in isolation. I want to know what are the thoughts that have led up to this one. 
And then beyond that, I want to know what situation was the author in when he wrote this? Um, who was he writing it to? What situation were they in? Sorry, you're so keen to say something. No, that's Go okay. for it. No, you're, you're spot on. Okay. It's just uh, unfortunately in this case, how you discover the context is a little bit dependent on the heuristic. So if you... if um, if you determine that some of these data points warrant the method of preterism, mm-hmm. that it's uh, all already come to pass very nearly after the writing of the document, well, then you try to suss out, well, when was that written? And depending on, yeah, I guess it's just the illusions then made throughout the book, is it referring to the Emperor Nero mm. or Domitian? Or other, and so yep. like the context of when John is writing is dependent on how you are in, interpreting the book. Yep. And so you, it's not as though there's always available this independent objective context mm-hmm. that's discoverable apart from the text itself. That's mm-hmm. what kind of stinks. Yeah. Is you need to do interpretive work to even get the context. Yes. In this particular one that's so heavily laden with this imagery and symbolism. Whereas I think in other like Pauline letters, the epistles, there are these little clues like the people he's mentioning yeah, um, and different controversies he's bringing up that you can kind of date the letter like, oh, yeah, this was happening in 45. Yeah. AD. Yeah. Yeah. There's less interpretive hurdles. I don't I don't need a whole heuristic that's to, to decipher that from certain letters. Right. I, yeah, I see what you're you know saying. What I mean? How much... Um, I don't know if this question makes sense to ask, but uh, how reasonable is it to expect, like especially in a book like Revelation, to be able to understand uh, every little image he used? Uh, like, if it, is, if it is this preterist view where he's writing about things... Well, okay, he's a guy on an island who's having a visionary experience and then relaying the visionary experience, which includes in it somebody saying, hey, this stuff's about to go down, right? That is the, that's like the Bible as purely literature response. Mm-hmm. Or to even like remove it a further later layer, uh, a guy wrote a document describing himself as having had dreams and visions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Like in order to get it past the guards or something. Right. Like, hey, I was dreaming. Here, here's some of my dreams. These are crazy dreams I had. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right. Um, it just seems to me like how how do you decide when something is just inaccessible to us now here at uh, 2022? Mm-hmm. Is that the year? Yeah, 2022. Is there some stuff that's just lost? I'm not going to be able to gain the proper context to put on the right lens to know what John meant when he talked about the mm-hmm. grapes or whatever, some pick an image, pick your favorite image. Uh, I won't dive down too deeply on your use of the word no. I think we had enough yeah. of that in the last episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it does bear, like, just real quick, mm-hmm. if, like, we mean certainty or not. Oh, sure. Um, and in which case, yeah, man, probably not at all. Yeah, yeah. Certainty is super it's elusive. really hard to get to that. Uh, so, I mean, it's a question of credence level. How much evidence do we have? And uh, some things don't get to that 50% mark, let's say, on your mm-hmm. justification, evidence, credence level. And mm-hmm. so 
Yeah, you remain agnostic. I'm not sure what this refers to. Yeah. So let me run this by you. Part of where my head's at. Mm-hmm. And please, actually, if, if my methods are all wrong and I've really screwed up, tell me because I don't want to make a mistake when I'm preaching. But my understanding... So I definitely lean preterist in terms of my understanding of the book. Um, my understanding of the context, and this is one that runs through a lot of the New Testament, actually, is that there is this sort of um, question that's being asked, who is really Lord? And you've got the Roman Empire who have em- emperor after emperor referred to as the son of God, or sometimes in really like overt language, savior of the world, um, glorious benefactor, like this sort of emperor worship was mandated uh, and was routine. And so then you've got the Christian gospel writers and epistle writers co-opting some of that language, like Mark's gospel, perfect example of this. It's um, his opening line talks about Jesus being the son of God. And then he's got later on the centurion after Jesus dies, who is admitting surely this man. And then you could imagine in parentheses, not Caesar is the son of God. Like the whole thing yeah. is pointing to this. Who's really King. Who's really God. Uh, what does God really look like? Does God look like Caesar or yeah. does God look like Jesus? You know, that's sort of the question that's being set up. And so the churches in revelation are under persecution for confessing Jesus to be Lord, not Caesar, or um, in the town square where they have to go and offer their incense and do some emperor worship, they're refusing to do it, being persecuted as a result. And now John is writing letters to encourage the churches to keep the faith, to remember which kingdom is the real kingdom. That's the approach I'm taking. That's where I think he's coming from. But um, to your point, I mean, there's no date in the text that tells me when John is writing this. I'm having to go to mm-hmm. external sources to look at that and to figure out what was going on in the culture at the time with Nero and is it Domitian. What was his, the other guy's name? Domitian. Yeah, Domitian. Domitian. Um, so I'm looking like at extra biblical sources there. So I just, I don't know if I'm doing that wrong. Like if I'm doing things out of order there or my method is wrong, that I'm not going to the text to find my method and then... I'm starting by what else was going on in the world. That's where I start before I jump into the text and be like, well, what kind of text do I think this is? But maybe mm-hmm. I'm doing that wrong. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Okay. I, I don't think you've done anything wrong at all. <gasps> Great. Okay. Um, all right. Because what you're... Hmm. Yep. Uh, the reason I'm saying... well. The reason I'm saying that you're doing nothing wrong is because I'm bringing to the table a view about hermeneutics and what the Bible is and what we're supposed to do with it. Mm. I'm making, I've made some assumptions there. Yes. Okay. I've considered them. (laughs) I think there's reasons for them. The reason not purely assuming, but I've just brought that in my answer to you because I do think discovering the authorial intent of the Mm -hmm. person who wrote it is helpful for uncovering the meaning that's in the text. Now, there is this other strain of hermeneutics called reader-responsive theory of hermeneutics Mm. where there's actually meaning beyond or that transcends the authorial intent Mm -hmm. and that it can mean something... To you, right? Uniquely? Or at least for me, yeah. Yeah. um, Which I think that would be like... um, often referred to like you ever read something in scripture and it seems to jump off the page or it speaks to your circumstance particularly. Mm-hmm. And it's like, 
Sometimes it's talked about the Holy Spirit illuminating that passage of Scripture to draw an analog between a situation there and something you're going through in your life to extract a principle that you can then apply to your life. Yeah. Um, but that's different than saying the author intended what he wrote to minister to your situation. Like, yeah, yeah exactly. It's something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, or let's, uh, do I want to go here? Let's take a case from so a piece of literature. Sorry to bring in Harry Potter, but I just do it because people have <laughs> read okay, it and man. heard about it. When, when Harry finally self-sacrifices himself to Voldemort to destroy the last Horcrux or whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, when J.K. Rowling wrote that, like, I don't know everything that was going on in her mind, but the intent was to communicate this story beat of here's how the plot's going to unfold mm-hmm. and ho- and probably had some hopes that this would connect with audiences. But mm-hmm. like perhaps as the reader, I pull a meaning out of that for me. Like, oh, yeah, like w- what a brave, courageous thing that Harry did. Um, I'm. I have this feeling like I should do this brave, courageous thing in my mm-hmm. work or my family life. Yep. Um, and that school of thought is is making the strong point that that meaning is in the text somehow, and I've I've dredged that out as the reader. Wow. And that's where you, that stronger claim is where you lose the more conservative crowd. Right. Um, yeah. Didn't Augustine think that way? Didn't he have stuff about like the ark is a symbol like? Um, I shouldn't mm. have even brought it up because I'm not going to quote it right. I'm pretty sure. Oh, interesting. Augustine I'm not sure about Augustine. Thoughts. When I my brain immediately jumps to Origin as the guy that's looking for allegorical, oh, symbolic maybe language. Maybe I'm confused. Maybe I'm thinking um, of Origin. Yeah. And that and that almost everything has this kind of strange double meaning. Well, but. what's so strange about that is uh, that can happen with literally anything you ever read or consume anywhere, ever. You can hear a song and That's think right. it's speaking to you. You can, uh, yeah, read a S- Simpsons comic and think it's speaking to you. Yeah. You know, and then so the more like conservative crowd, more focused on authorial intent, would say, "Well, you're confusing the meaning of the text with like how it struck you and mm-hmm. applying it to your situation." But it doesn't mean the objective meaning. Yeah, it doesn't mean that. Um, right. Another one we don't need to resolve right now yeah yeah but your hunt for context yeah is going to help you in your effort to get inside the mind of the writer however difficult that is and sometimes it is beyond our reach right right um but to the best you can you can get a sense of what it might have been like to be the author Mm -hmm. and that can help you interpret the writing yeah and well not just help um is your best guy crucial yeah Yeah. really (laughs) crucial actually because if you don't have con if you don't have the correct context, you will not get the correct meaning. Just, You're liable to make a mistake by just reading the English words off yeah. the page. I mean, just definitionally, that's what context is. Context, um, it is what surrounds the words. That It is the words relationship to the context that gives them meaning. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, dumb example, but if I tell a story about having been in a library with my brother and I say he threw the book at me, that means one thing. Maybe he picked up a book and threw it. Mm-hmm. But if you say he got a DUI and the judge threw the book at him, it means something very different. He didn't pick up a book. He means he really penalized him as hard as he could. So, yes, yes. And the same words, uh, same expression, totally different context, completely different meaning. And the same thing's true with scripture as well. So 
that's why it's always my step one. Yeah. So that's like cultural context. And then mm -hmm. you have literary context. Uh, oh, yeah. What are the surrounding passages yeah. saying that might help you? That Like there's a the advice, never read a Bible verse. Yeah. Uh, or even that you can apply that to any piece of literature because you're missing out on the literary context. What were the preceding paragraphs saying? Yeah. What were the preceding and following chapters saying? Yeah. Or what even genre of literature is this? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. All of that. If you've ever been writing something, you know that, I mean, unless you're just really trash at writing, those are considerations of like, there's mm -hmm. some big thought I'm trying to build. So to get there, I need to set up this paragraph, this paragraph, this paragraph. Each paragraph has sentences within it that need to make sense. So yeah, there's just these layers of context that you've got to take into account. Uh, another one that can trip up or just another philosophical piece of baggage that we bring to the table as interpreters mm. is, uh, and it, it influenced a lot of scriptural interpretation to what degree will we allow like miraculous events to take place? Oh yeah. So for instance, um, I think like even the preterist view would be considered within the fold of evangelicalism, mm -hmm. which is more comfortable with allowing uh, supernatural, like prophetic occurrences to occur. Mm -hmm. So to say that like John was genuinely receiving some kind of divinely revelatory experience through the dream or vision that he wrote down. And so like f some future knowledge claims were in there. Mm -hmm. So like when he spoke about the temple that had not happened yet, how, and however metaphorical, elusive language. Yep. Um, and so there was a genuine divine prophetic foreshadowing of that event. Mm -hmm. So you can come to the table with being okay with that being something that happens in writing or not. And if you're not yeah. like um, a John Crossan or a Marcus Borg type of scholarly figure, these guys, they would all point put John... Like it, it has to be in the Domitian rule in the 80 to 90 mm. because he's made allusions to the temple being destroyed. And he couldn't have known about that. Right. Yeah. And so it had to be later. See, that's, um, that's interesting. Man. That's a philosophical difference you're bringing to your interpretive lens. Yeah. That, it, that you can't just get that from the context. Mm -hmm. It's informing your decision on what to count as context. Yeah. Uh, this happens all the time with, yeah. uh, like, Jesus himself. I think I'm going to butcher the quote. I think it might be in, like, the Olivet Discourse, but I think there is some foreshadowing of the destruction of the temple. Like, mm. there will be no stone left unturned. Mm. I think in reference to the temple, I want to say. I don't know. I know. He definitely talks about this temple will be torn down in three days. I'll rebuild it. And he's talking about himself. Mm. And people are confused about it. Yeah. Like, what's he talking about destroying the temple? But in any case, there, I'm pretty sure there's allusions to the destruction of the actual temple, mm -hmm. and that, and it has caused scholars to say, "Oh, well, Matthew and Luke weren't written until way later." Right? Because that, how could they have it's known just about impossible. it? Impossible. And the more you know, maybe evangelical, okay with pro the prophetic, would say, "Well, why are you?" But God is real and told them ahead of time, and they yeah. it was a, fore, a foretelling. And that's all something that you you make that decision before you even get to the text. There's no <laughs> there's no textual thing to help you solve that. Yeah, man. 
that's a philosophy thing. Or um, hmm. what's a no, never mind. Okay, sorry, it's all right. Oh, sorry. I, now I know what I was gonna say. Uh, that like you find this in the historicity of the resurrection oh, argument. Yeah. Um, like a uh, uh, a bard airman, I I think is is in this camp. Um, when I'm doing history, mm-hmm. I cannot appeal to the supernatural. Mm-hmm. It's part of the methodology of doing the discipline of history. Yep. I must always look for the non-supernatural explanation. And so it's off the table that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That's not a possible, as a historian. As a historian. In the same way you assume methodological naturalism in science. Correct. You're not appealing to God. God's not the one who makes flame appear on a candle. It's like this chemical reaction. We're going to find another way to explain it if we can, because that's mm-hmm. what science is. And that's proven super helpful Yeah. in the history of science. Right. Yeah. Yes. Here we are communicating to you as yeah. a result of that science. That, that decision to... <laughs> that decision, yeah. ...preclude supernatural explanations as valid in the field. Yeah. It le- it really did lead to great discoveries. Yep. Um, and I would say that's probably most of the time true about history. Um, mm. But I just can't, I, I don't, I don't feel as, I feel like it might be a bridge too far to include methodological naturalism in historical work and literary criticism. Yeah. I wonder in, if, in a way that's independent of like just the debate about God's existence. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I wonder if John knew the meaning of the visions he was writing down. Some of them. Well, because again, I'm just replaying some of the text in my head. Chapter one, he's like, hey, to the seven churches in Asia, I'm writing to you. I'm John. I'm here on the island of Patmos. I had this vision, and in the vision I was told to write to you. The vision went like this. Well, here it, it is. Then the yeah. rest of the book is yeah. the vision, and and all the speaking is not John anymore, unless it's like, and then I turned and saw yeah. something. It's this son of man figure with eyes like fire who's saying, and write to the church in uh, Laodicea or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, And then I saw a dragon come out of the sea, and then I saw this. He may just very well be doing what was asked, which was write down what you see and send it to the churches. I'm wondering where it's implied that he understood the things he saw or if it's implied that he understood Mm -hmm. them or if he just wrote them down and sent them. Does John know what the mark of the beast is? Um, I don't know. I think think this is where the preterist view can get into hot water with Mm -hmm. the more conservative crowd is... I might confuse myself, but I'll try to, Please. to birth it here. Great. So uh, if you if you give too much to John in his knowledge of what he's writing about yep. and that it's all the whole thing is this big document of coded language, he's trying to send messages to these churches, yep. then you get into the trick of like, well, at the beginning of the book, he says like that God told me to yeah. do it. And then, I don't know, there's some tension there. Like, well, did you really have the vision? Or did you craft everything to be in the guise of a vision? Of a vision so it would get through to your audience. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. So it just puts a little bit of pressure on certain pictures of inspiration and what's 
going yep. on there. But either way, that's very different than my childlike view something? where the yeah. world really was as monsters coming out of the sea and you know swarms of locusts and stuff mm-hmm. um where, where the book of revelation was attempting to literally describe to me what will happen later in my life yeah you know i used dude it used to um oh i wish i could remember the name there was a guest that was on uh the bible for normal people mm. who uh taught wrote like a dissertation on eschatological trauma oh. and how, and I, I resonated with the feeling of fear that he described mm. of um, just being steeped in the more like left behind series esque yeah. the Christian. And for those audience members who may not know, like the basic gist is the church, the capital C invisible church where the true believers are raptured out. That doesn't mean all the pastors. No, all, plenty of in all phonies. the renditions. There's some pastor that was left behind. It turned out to be a fraud. They're they're instantaneously evaporated Whisked away to the to, heavens, uh, and we're left in the tribulation, the seven year period of turmoil and the rise of the antichrist. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of details, but just that rapture event alone freaked the heck out of me, dude. Oh yeah, because man. or at least having a um a my dad's a pastor. I, I would never have considered him to be in the category of left behind, left behind no, pastors. No, no. So he's him. gone. But maybe and, you would be left behind. And I'm just in the back seat of the car while we're driving <laughs> to McDonald's, or um, it just was scary. Dude. Yeah. And so I remember praying little prayers of salvation. Yeah. To just make sure I'm ready to just go. Really. In case if you come back, I want to go with you, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And all all of that. Because and I had no idea. I didn't at the know time. there was an alternative view. I didn't know there was a that's different. Thing. That's because some guys came yep. and gals thought this was the best way to read that book. Yeah, and perhaps it. I'm not trying to say like it's for another time to yeah. sort out all the details. And there's a lot of data to sort through. But just I didn't even know that you could think differently about it. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I don't know if you're listening and you similarly are. Your you're, eye. You're just <laughs> discovering. There's other ways to think about it. That's pretty much true of every area of life is what adulthood has taught me. Mm. There's multiple ways to think about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, but, but hopefully that's helpful. Like just in the project of interpretation. Uh, yeah. There, there's philosophical commitments that are brought to the table. Again, mm. a point for philosophy. Yeah. It's yeah. worth thinking about and studying. <laughs> uh, you'd be surprised how much, and I would be too, if, how much philosophical content is assumed in how you live and move and mm-hmm. have your being and interact with things in the world and people and ideas just brings so much assumptions to the table. I mean, part of the, yep. part of the wrecking ball of philosophy is to come in and, and challenge those assumptions to illuminate yeah. when you have just been tacitly assuming something is true without considering it. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you were wrong. It just means you may not have really been justified in thinking it. Right. You need to go back to the drawing board and rebuild the scaffolding of evidence Mm -hmm. because it wasn't ever there to begin with. You just kind of assumed assumed it. It It was taken as an axiom. Yep. When not everything are axioms. No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a good man. Well, thanks for digging into that with me. Uh, hopefully this week will be useful to somebody when yeah. I get up there and, and start don't, talking. Don't say any of that on Sunday. Yeah. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. 
All right. Well, thanks for listening. As always, if you've got a question, something to add, you've got a unique take on the book of Revelation, by all means, shoot it through, leave it in the comments. Or if you're watching on YouTube, or you can write to us mailbag at openatruth.com and we'll respond to your question either in comments. Do we or want any comment? Episode. Like a whole slew? I'm afraid now of a I, whole. Um, no, I want any comment because you never know what you're going to get. A whole theory, you know? Of, um, <laughs> I reckon on this one, we'll get some theories actually, depending on the thumbnail. You guys have it all. I know. Yeah. Can really, let's get, let's do a real apocalyptic the... thumbnail and see what comments we get. <laughs> all right. All right. We love you. Thanks for interacting. We'll see you. Join, uh, stay curious. <laughs> I was going to say join the conversation. Yeah. You can do that too. Yeah. All right. Bye.